Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm Kim Tibaldo, CEO of the Cancer Support Community. For more than 35 years, we at the Cancer Support Community have been a relentless ally for anyone impacted by cancer. We help individuals manage the realities of this disruptive disease and try to get back to normal, whether accessing our free services in person at one of our 175 locations, online or over our toll-free helpline, you're getting a team of licensed professionals providing patient navigation, financial counseling, genetic counseling, pediatric support, and more. On today's show, we're going to take a close look at metastatic breast cancer. Thanks to better and more targeted treatment options, women are living longer than ever with metastatic breast cancer with a notable percentage living five or more years and some for even 10 years or longer. We're going to have a wide-ranging conversation covering diagnosis, treatment options, and shared decision-making with a true expert, Dr. Lydia Shapira. Let me tell you about her. Dr. Lydia Shapira is Associate Professor of Medicine at Stanford University School of Medicine and Director of Cancer Survivorship at the Stanford Comprehensive Cancer Institute. Dr. Shapira's clinical research is dedicated to improving quality of life and health outcomes for people living with cancer and their caregivers. She's a co-investigator in a longitudinal study of young women with breast cancer based at the Dana-Farber Harvard Cancer Institute in Boston. Dr. Shapira has pioneered research in training and communication skills for cancer clinicians and is currently designing novel programs to equip cancer patients to meet the challenges of living with a life-altering illness. Through mentoring, teaching, and writing, Dr. Shapira has contributed to training oncologists to recognize the importance of attending to the social and emotional dimensions of care. Dr. Shapira is a former member of the faculty at Harvard Medical School and a consultant editor for the Journal of Clinical Oncology. She served on the board of directors of the American Psychosocial Oncology Society and is a fellow uh, at ASCO. She is also a longtime friend uh, of the cancer support community and, in my estimation, one of the uh, best oncologists in the country, um, uh, and, and I say that with all uh, truth and sincerity. Um, thanks for being here with us today, Dr. Lydia Shapira. Thank you. It is my privilege. Thank you so much, Kim, for inviting me. Absolutely. Well, let's jump right in. We have a lot to cover uh, today on this deep topic. Um, so, Dr. Shapira, anytime someone receives a diagnosis of breast cancer, it is frightening regardless of whether it's metastatic or non-metastatic, regardless of the stage, um, what do you tell a patient when they are newly diagnosed with breast cancer? So this is a great question, which allows me to talk a little bit about the importance of establishing a good relationship and communication. Before I tell anything, I need to ask what that person knows and what they want and need to know. And the information I give will hopefully be tailored to meet their needs. It may be very different for somebody who faces a diagnosis of metastatic cancer, where the conversation is more about this being a chronic illness, a forever illness, an illness that is very treatable but not curable, to the conversation I would have with somebody who's newly diagnosed after something was picked up, say, on a screening mammogram, and they have a very small breast cancer with very favorable biology, and our expectation is that they'll be cured and forever cancer-free. 
So I tailor what I say to the situation, but also to the needs of the individual. That's terrific to hear. And uh, already (laughs) something we're hearing that we know that all uh, doctors uh, don't think about or take into account. Um, let's, Let's get to some of the medical pieces for a minute, Dr. Shapiro. Can you... Tell us the difference between um, breast cancer, invasive breast cancer, metastatic breast cancer. What do these terms mean? What do we need to know? So breast cancer refers to any cancer that starts in breast tissue. If it is in the breast, then it's easy to know that it's breast. It's recognizable as breast cancer. If it's invasive, it means that that cancer has the potential or ability to spread to other organs. And we can tell that by the appearance of the cells under the microscope. They've crossed what we call a basement membrane, and they show that they have at least the potential of of spread. So we base our treatment um, on trying to prevent them from spreading or from setting up cancers in other parts of the body. Metastatic breast cancer refers to cancer that started in the breast but has spread to a different organ. So if it is in the liver... Um, instead of calling it liver cancer, if the tissue of origin is the breast tissue, we call it breast cancer that has metastasized to the liver. This is really important because we treat based on the fact that it started in the breast. We've learned, we've organized our clinical trials and our treatments directed to those cells of origin. And that's why it's important to understand these terms. Excellent, excellent. Good, good, uh, good education for us there. Um, so we know that uh, some people are diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer as their initial diagnosis, uh, and then while for some a significant percentage they're diagnosed as uh, a recurrence with metastatic breast cancer. Can you just talk about those two components? Absolutely. So about five out of a hundred, five percent as patients with metastatic breast cancer have this as their first presentation. In other words, um, this is the first time that they hear they have breast cancer. The majority of patients, uh, mostly women, although men can get metastatic breast cancer as well, and the majority of patients who have metastatic breast cancer have had the diagnosis made years prior. So it may have been a few years, or it may have been 10 or even more years prior. And that's one of the reasons why it's so important to think about the ability to spread when we first meet a patient because we want to prevent them from having a recurrence. So to make this really clear, um, the majority of patients who have metastatic breast cancer have already had an experience of being treated for the disease. But now in the new setting of being diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer, they have to adjust to the fact that at this stage, the, tre- the breast cancer is very treatable but not curable, meaning that they will probably need to be on some form of treatment for the rest of their lives. Got it. Got it. Good to know. And we're going to get into some of the, uh, some of the different treatment options um, a little bit later in the show. But let's just talk for a minute about um, risk factors. Are there any particular risk factors for being diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer? What do people need to know? This is a very interesting question, and I don't have a great answer. I think the greatest risk factor is the biology of the cancer, the ability of that cancer to spread to other organs. There are situations, Kim, that I've been in with patients 
who at the very first time that they are diagnosed with this already have signs that the cancer has spread. And it is not because they didn't take care of themselves or they didn't have their screening um, test as we recommend. It's because they have they had the bad luck of having a cancer that had the ability, the potential to spread. So it's typically something about the biology of that cancer that allowed it to spread sort of before it gave any signs of being a problem in the breast. Understood, Dr. Shapira. Um, let's, let's expand a little bit on, um, on testing. What tests are most important to have in order to most accurately diagnose metastatic breast cancer? Um, you know, when a woman comes in, she has a diagnosis of cancer. What, what are you looking at? What are you exploring? What tests are important for this accurate diagnosis? I think this is a really a great question, and it comes to what is what what needs to be done. How much information do we need to collect to be sure that we have the right diagnosis? The success of our treatment, in part or to a large part, dependent us having the right diagnosis. So we need, typically, we want some tissue. We want to do a biopsy. We want to make sure that we look at that at those cells under the microscope, that we test the receptors, that we're absolutely sure. And in the setting of metastatic breast cancer, these days, we're also doing some more complex testing and genomic profiling to try to identify the drivers of growth for that particular tumor so we can customize, personalize the treatment. That's one thing. We need to understand what cancer we're dealing with. And breast cancer, as many of your listeners will know, is sort of a family of many different diseases, and it's really important to figure out what you're dealing with. And the other part of it is the extent of spread. So for that, we need to do a lot of um, imaging tests. Typically, we use CAT scans. Sometimes we use PET scans and bone scans and MRIs, and we image most of the body. Uh, typically from neck to toe. In some cases, we need to image the brain, but not always. And that is customized depending on the kind of cancer, the biology of that breast cancer. Uh, let, let me just break down a couple terms that you mentioned uh, for our listeners. We've got a couple minutes until our uh, break here. So let's just quickly go through a couple of these terms. Biopsy. So biopsy means taking a Sample of the abnormal tissue. So say somebody has a lymph node, a little gland that is abnormal, or a spot in their lung, or a spot in their liver, or in their bone. A biopsy means that we need to guide a needle or some instrument to that area that's abnormal. Usually we do it, you know, while we're looking at this with a CAT scan or an ultrasound or an MRI and remove a small piece, we send it to the lab for it to be analyzed. And then we order a lot of other tests on that specimen. So biopsy means removing with an instrument a piece of the abnormal tissue so it can be categorized and examined and studied. And just quickly, before we get to our break, Dr. Shapiro, you mentioned the word Receptors. What does that mean? So receptors um, are typically proteins that are on the surface of the cells that um, tell us something about what those cancer cells need 
in order to grow. So the most common receptors that we all have heard of are those for the female hormones, estrogen and progesterone. So we test to see if those cancer cells have those. If they do, it typically means that they are susceptible to be influenced by those hormones, and that's really important because then we can direct our therapies to that. Excellent, excellent. And on the flip side of our break, I want to talk, you also mentioned genomic testing. I know a lot of people, when they hear that, they think maybe we're talking about genetics, maybe we're talking about family history. So after our break, we'll, we'll, we'll get into some of these other screening tests and biomarker testing, but I also want to talk a little bit about the difference between genetic and genomic. And as we get into the sort of biomarker testing questions, I want to break that down as well, Dr. Shapir, for our listeners. Uh, this is frankly speaking about cancer. We're talking today about a metastatic breast cancer. We have an outstanding guest with us, Dr. Lydia Shapiro. She's Associate Professor of Medicine at Stanford University School of Medicine and Director of Cancer Survivorship at the Stanford Comprehensive Cancer Institute. This is frankly speaking about cancer. We have a lot more to discuss with Dr. Shapira. We're going to take a quick break here. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle coworkers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. 
Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm your host, Kim Chibaldo. Today's episode is brought to you by Lilly Oncology. We're taking a close look at metastatic breast cancer. Our guest is Dr. Lydia Shapira, who is Associate Professor of Medicine at Stanford University School of Medicine and Director of Cancer Survivorship at the Stanford Comprehensive Cancer Center. She is a former member of the faculty at Harvard Medical School and a consultant editor for the Journal of Clinical Oncology. She is also a longstanding friend and advisor to the cancer uh, support community, and for that, we are um, incredibly grateful. Dr. Shapira, um, we were talking a little bit before the break about some of the tests that we have so that there can be a definitive diagnosis of metastatic breast cancer, stage of disease, et cetera. Um, you, we, we talked a little bit about what's commonly referred to as imaging. Um, so how does a patient know if they should ask for, you talked about a CAT scan, a PET scan, an MRI, um, you know, how, do, how does, will, will the doctor call for this? Should the patient be asking for it? How will a patient know if imaging is required? Sure. So imaging refers to all of the above, all of these different scans. CAT scan, let's just say, is using x-rays that are linked to a computer that provides a series of very detailed pictures of different areas inside the body. The pictures are taken from different angles, and then the doctors who are looking at it can reconstruct the anatomy of a particular part of the body. The difference between CAT and PET scan is the PET scan uses the same technology, but they use a different kind of dye that is taken up by certain tissues more than others. So, Whether you need a CAT scan or a PET scan depends a little bit on the situation. For breast cancer, it's possible to use either one, and a lot depends on the preference of individual doctors, so I don't want anybody to obsess about that. I think it's important to be able to ask the doctor, why did you order this, or would I be uh, better off doing this test or the other? There are parts of the body that are better imaged with MRI, which uses a different kind of procedure and that uses magnets. The brain is better imaged with MRI, and the liver, if there's a real problem, is often better imaged with MRI. Bone scan uses even a different technique. People who get PET scans may not need a bone scan because a PET scan gives good, gives good detail about bones. People who get CAT scans may actually also need a bone scan. So how to put all of these things together depends on the different situations, and I think that's something that's important for somebody to ask their doctor. What parts of the body are you and I going to be looking at why is it important to know if there's cancer in those parts of the body and are we going to use the same test later on to see if the treatment is effective or not. It's probably better to think of it in those terms, Kim, rather than go in with a set idea of, you know, should I have this or I want to have that. Yeah, terrific. And as you said earlier, it really goes back to that patient-physician communication and, and, and the patient wanting to be educated and empowered and have a good, thorough conversation with their doctor, really, and have confidence um, in the treatment plan. So that's, I think, great, um, great advice. Dr. Shapira, I want to I talk a little bit about, you, you mentioned before the break, genomic testing. Um, I know that, that it comes by many different names. Um, oftentimes, we might hear molecular testing, genomic testing, next generation sequencing. Um, we're going to, for simplification, we want to just use maybe the term biomarker testing, and we're hearing a lot about personal, personalized medicine and biomarker testing. But I want to talk about what biomarker testing is and what it means, but I'd also like to just take a minute to, if you could enlighten us about the difference between 
genetic testing and genomic testing or biomarker testing? Sure, of course. And this is an area of confusion for many people. So to keep it really simple, I would say that the important message is that genetic is what you inherited from your mother and father. So there is not much that can be done to correct it, but uh, or anything for that matter. But what's important is to know it. So there are some individuals who have a genetic susceptibility to develop a cancer, which means that they've inherited something from mother or father that increases their risk of getting cancer. And in some cases, that actually may change the biology and behavior of the cancer. Perfect example of that for our breast cancer listeners is the BRCA story, where if you have BRCA, you know that you are more likely in the course of your lifetime to develop breast cancer. And if you have BRCA and breast cancer, we now know that there may be some treatments that may be particularly effective. Same story for ovarian cancer and others. So the genetic piece is the part that's inherited that the person, him or herself, can transmit to their progeny, their sons and daughters, and that may even that may influence their risk of getting other cancers or the biology of the cancer that they already have, and so may be important in discussions of treatment. The genomic part has to do with thinking about what's happening in the tumor itself. So it may be something that happened as a result of the cancer cells in the tumor dividing, and that has nothing to do with inheritance, but is very important in helping us understand how these cancers work. And you're absolutely right. Unfortunately, we have so many different names, the biomarkers, the molecular profiling, genomic profiling. So to keep it really simple, I'd say that when we talk, for instance, about next-generation sequencing of tumors, it's what they're looking for is analyzing the cancer specimens uh, that are sent, the biopsies that are sent, into classes of different sort of alterations or um, sort of uh, changes that have been made in that cancer for which sometimes we actually have drugs that allow us to target those particular changes, and these are what people call actionable mutations, and perhaps even think about applying a treatment plan that's specifically designed or precise enough to to be effective for that tumor. So again, two very different concepts. One is to be tested for things that you may have inherited that increase the risk of cancer, and the other is to try to pick up what has happened in that tumor through this process of the tumor cells dividing many times that has led to the sort of successful emergence of some families within that tumor that have changes that we can identify and then use to plan our treatment. Great. Thank you. That's great clarification. Helps us understand, uh, and, and that's, I think, an important uh, education for our listeners in terms of the difference between the two, because I know it comes up with a lot of confusion. Um, and in Dr. breast Sherman, cancer, uh, Kim, I would say that it's important for every person who's diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer to have this conversation early on, maybe in the first consultation with the oncologist and ask, you know, can we review the results of my genetic testing? Have I been tested? And is it important for me to be tested now? And two, in um, examining the tissue that leads you to to give me the diagnosis of metastatic breast cancer, have you also sent that tissue for 
genomic testing or next-generation sequence testing or however you want to call it. But asking those two questions, I think, in the first consult sets the tone for having an informed conversation and dialogue. Terrific. Great advice. That's right. And, and we really do. The reason we do this show and everything that we do is to educate patients so that they can feel confident going in to their doctor with these questions um, and, and, and discussions. So I think these are great tips, great advice. Um, we know, Dr. Shapiro, that um, men are often forgotten in this discussion about breast cancer, but they too can receive the diagnosis. Are men and women with metastatic breast cancer diagnosed and treated differently? No, they're treated similarly. Most male breast cancers are hormonally sensitive. So the differences are sometimes in the type of hormonal treatments that we recommend. Um, and I don't want to get very specific. That may yes. be a little bit different. Men may need to have sort of a slightly different um, cocktail of drugs. But in general, the treatments that work for women also work for men with metastatic breast cancer. Got it. Got it. I want to flip now and start to talk a little bit about um, treatment options. I know, th- I know there are many, um, but let's start with some basics. We know that surgery is often a first line of treatment uh, for cancer in general. How does this apply to metastatic breast cancer? Well, so this is a really timely question, Kim. And in fact, at the ASCO meeting in June, that will be a virtual meeting, there will be a very important study presented that addresses this question. This is something that the oncology community and the patient community have really struggled with. It's hard to know whether or not a woman or a man, for that matter, who's diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer and still has the breast in place or the breast lump in place, but we know there's evidence that it has spread already, whether or not they will benefit from having that lump removed. So that has been studied in research, and um, I urge everybody to stay tuned, and I think we will learn more about the results. Um, of those studies soon. In general, the advice has been not to focus on the need for surgery for that primary site, um, but to focus on treatment of breast cancer in the entire body. So treating it, the word that oncologists love to use, is a systemic disease, meaning it's everywhere. So surgery plays a role in this situation if that primary tumor or a bulky tumor in one part of the body is causing symptoms. And then it's absolutely fine if somebody has an otherwise good prognosis to say, why don't we um, take some time to remove this particular lump because it's either painful or, or causing some other problem because of its location. But in general, surgery is not part of the treatment plan for metastatic breast cancer. Got it. Very, um, very interesting and helpful uh, to know. I, I, I can't believe we're already getting to our second break here because we've got uh, so much more to cover with um, uh, with Dr. Shapiro. This is frankly speaking about cancer. We're talking today about um, metastatic breast cancer. We're talking about we're talking about diagnosis. We're talking about treatment, and we're going to talk also a little bit about you know making sure we're treating the whole person and 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 the importance of good and open patient physician communication. So a patient has confidence in their treatment plan. They feel like they're a part of the team engaging in what we call shared decision-making um, with their doctor. Uh, Dr. Lydia Shapira is Associate Professor of Medicine at Stanford University School of Medicine. We've got a lot more to dive in with uh, Dr. Shapira today. We're going to take just a quick break here. 
Uh, Don't go away. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer, and we'll be right back. At Lilly Oncology, we know people living with metastatic breast cancer, or MBC, deserve more. More can be done for the mothers, daughters, sisters, wives, and partners facing the unique challenges of this advanced disease, and every moment counts. While there has been progress made over the last few years in distinguishing MBC and bringing forward new treatment options, there is still more to be done to truly support the women and men living with this disease every day so they can continue to be there for family and friends. Lilly Oncology is focused on raising more awareness through education, more research, and more dedicated solutions to help empower people living with this disease because together we know we can do more for MBC. This content is selected by the Cancer Support Community and is funded in part by Eli Lilly and Company. People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help, and many of the people in their lives want to help but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Meal Trains sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit Mealtrain.com slash MMT and enter the code MAGNOLIAB or visit us at CancerSupportCommunity.org. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're having an in-depth conversation with Dr. Lydia Shapira. She's Associate Professor of Medicine at Stanford University School of Medicine and Director of Cancer Survivorship at the Stanford Comprehensive Cancer Institute. Dr. Shapira, before the break, we started to get into some of the treatment options. We um, started to talk a little bit about uh, surgery and its place in the treatment of metastatic breast cancer. Um, so we do hear so, you know, some patients having surgery before uh, chemo, but sometimes they'll have surgery after chemo after radiation. So talk to us about sort of sequence of events, chemotherapy, radiation, surgery, and how it applies. I know it's different in every case, but how do we think about that in metastatic breast cancer? Sure. So in metastatic breast cancer, many patients are not going to have surgery. But at the time of the initial diagnosis, if the uh, cancer is at a low stage with the intention of curing, many patients have surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy and hormonal therapy. The sequence depends on a few things, the size of the cancer, the biology of the cancer, the availability of treatment, and patient preference. In some cases, there is a a general recommendation made to treat with chemotherapy or hormonal therapy before surgery, and we call that neoadjuvant therapy to reduce the size of the tumor and make the operation much simpler and smaller. 
and in some cases because of the biology, say it's a cancer that's driven by the oncogene HER2. We have so many effective therapies. We try to give those first, again, as a way of reducing the, the sort of the, the amount of cancer in that body. So it depends a lot on the patient's age, the biology, the circumstances, and sometimes even the preference. There is no reason to think that giving, for instance, chemotherapy before or after will alter the effectiveness of the overall treatment. So the final outcome may be the same, but the process, the journey, and the options that open to the patient may be quite different. Good to to know. Good good to understand that. Um, I want to get into, I know there are lots of different ways to treat um, women with patients with metastatic breast cancer, let's go through a few of them. I'm gonna I'm gonna put three out there if you can help us kind of walk through these and understand them: uh, chemotherapy, immunotherapy, and targeted therapy. Could we go through those three? How do they play in the treatment of metastatic breast cancer, and what determine what determines you know what the treatment plan is? Yes. So in metastatic breast cancer, it's very important again. I think that to base treatment decisions on what works for that patient, what her goals are, his goals are, what's important to them, you know, how much time do they want to spend at the cancer clinic or the hospital or treatment center, how much, how portable they want the therapy to be. The best is to try to find what we call a targeted therapy, and the best target in breast cancer are those hormone receptors. So if a cancer is hormonally sensitive, we can think of the hormonal therapies that sort of uh, block the utilization of those hormones, typically estrogen and progesterone, and thus deprive the cancer cells of what they need to grow and remain viable. So many, many patients who have metastatic breast cancer are on a variety of hormonal therapies for years and years and years with good quality of life and good function. So we may need to change them because cancer cells may develop resistance to a particular treatment, but then there are other possible combinations. And I think the great innovation in breast cancer therapy in the last five years is that we don't just give the hormonal agent. We just are able now to combine it perhaps with other drugs that help those agents be even more powerful and to overcome the resistance. As far as chemotherapy goes, those are the drugs that are typically given either by mouth or by vein, and uh, basically seek out cancer cells, but they're not specific. So the same drug used to treat breast cancer can be used to treat lung cancer or stomach cancer. Uh, Typically, they also have more collateral damage. So we try to use them very judiciously, and in general, if there is a target, we try to avoid using chemotherapy until we absolutely need to further down the line, usually many years later. Immunotherapy is sort of in its infancy for breast cancer. There have been some interesting studies showing that there's probably a role, especially in triple negative breast cancer, in combination with the chemotherapy drug. But I would say right now it's still early days for immunotherapy. Excellent. Um, You just used the term, I'm I'm sure we'd like to understand a little bit better, triple negative uh, breast cancer. Just tell us what that is, Dr. Shapira. Sure. Typically, the three main receptors in breast cancer that we look for are estrogen, progesterone, which are hormonal, and HER2, which is an oncogene. About one in four, one in five patients with breast cancer have this HER2. For them, there are a whole bunch of treatments that are very active, but it's just for that selective population. About 15% of all breast cancer patients 
do not have any of these three. And so the abbreviation now is that they're called triple negative. I'm sure with time, um, Kim, this will change. And as there's more research going on and we're starting to find other minor targets, perhaps, all of this will evolve. So I'm very hopeful that the science of breast cancer research and treatment will evolve for that population that we call triple negative. And can you just expand just for a moment, uh, Dr. Shapiro, on HER2 as well? Sure. So HER2, um, typically we think of as a great example of these targeted therapies, sort of the, if you want to think of targeted therapy as a lock and key, you know, if I can find something that somehow binds to that HER2 and get my drug or my poison inside those cells, I can inactivate them. And we have lots of antibodies these days. We have drugs that are conjugates that have an antibody and get into the cell and activate it. We've had great news in the last few months that, there, that some of these drugs are even active in the brain, which has been a, a huge area of, of trouble for many of our, our patients living with HER2 positive metastatic breast cancer. So we've had great, we used to say that we had great treatments for the rest of the body, but unfortunately not the brain. And now we've even crossed that. So it's, a, it's a really a very exciting time for um, HER2-positive breast cancer. And are these tests that will be done on every person with breast cancer, or are these tests patients should be asking for, asking about? HER2 is routinely done. I don't think anybody in the United States does not have that these days. And the estrogen status as well, the hormone exactly. status. Correct. Yes. Okay, great. Great. Just good to know. Good to know. So we're just guiding patients through what they should be asking, uh, asking for. Um, so just talk a little bit more, Dr. Shapira, about your um, excitement. I hear some enthusiasm in your voice about some progress that we're making in the treatment of metastatic breast cancer. In your experience over your career, what are the advances that you've seen that are most exciting and what do you still see on the horizon? One of the most exciting things is this ability to customize treatment. Um, I think it was extraordinarily frustrating to only have a few treatments and to basically prescribe those for everybody with the best of intentions, but knowing that only a small number of those patients would benefit and all of them would probably um, suffer from the toxicity or side effects of cancer treatments. And so the excitement is this ability to separate the, um, the, the, the patient's tumors into classes or categories to be able to study how different drugs affect them, to be able to be much more precise in our recommendations, to be able to give better cancer treatment that's more effective and less toxic um, in the area of hormonally driven cancers, that is those that really need, um, you know, estrogen as a, as a driver of growth. We now have combinations where we can combine sort of a backbone of an estrogen-lowering drug with another drug that also works on that pathway in a slightly different place. We give both. We get better results. We prolong the time that these drugs are um, effective. And if and when that tumor develops resistance, we now have second, third-line combinations. So the time that we can keep somebody functioning well, feeling well, performing well in their roles, continuing to be productive is much, much longer. Their quality of life is so much better. Even with chemotherapy drugs, we have now drugs that can be given by mouth, so that is portable chemotherapy in a way. Mm -hmm. So I've seen Mm -hmm. all of this really change. We have drugs that are able 
to get cancer successfully out of bone, preventing, you know, those very painful fractures and disabilities that we saw many years and decades ago. So it's really been transformative. You can live well with metastatic breast cancer. And so it's really important, I think, to prepare um, folks for this, but also to make sure that they can advocate for themselves and always look to preserve quality of life. There are many drugs that are coming down the pipeline. And so I'm always very excited about trying to push patients with metastatic breast cancer to go and look for clinical trials as well because often that's where we find some innovation. And it's important to think about it early on, not just when sort of you run out of the normal treatment options. Um, For patients who don't have the um, hormonally driven tumors but have the HER2, as I said before, we now have a variety of drugs that can keep the disease stable with good function. For patients who have uh, triple negative breast cancer, that's where I think Um, We still need to make more progress, and I'm hopeful that perhaps with new targets and with immunotherapy, we will also um, catch up in that area for that population. Dr. Shapiro, we have one quick minute until our break, but you mentioned clinical trials. Just a quick definition for our listeners of what trials are, and I know folks are nervous about getting a placebo on a cancer treatment trial. Not the case, correct? Not the case, absolutely. There are high ethical standards. They should be very transparent. Everybody should Mm -hmm. be able to read a consent form, we hope, and understand it or ask a lot of questions. And um, in general, the clinical trials for metastatic breast cancer um, actually um, are ways of, if you want, to think of having more options, so expanding Mm -hmm. the treatment options, and, of course, also help us all you know, doctors, patients, researchers to contribute yes. and jointly um, make some, um, some good discoveries that will good lead progress. to more treatments yeah. down the line. Great. Terrific. We've got more to discuss with Dr. Lydia Shapiro. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Our show today is brought to you by Lilly Oncology. We will be right back. At Lilly Oncology, we know people living with metastatic breast cancer, or MBC, deserve more. There has been progress made over the last few years in bringing forward new treatment options, but there is still more to be done. Lilly Oncology is focused on raising more awareness through education, more research, and more dedicated solutions to help empower people living with this disease, because together, we can do more for MBC. This content is selected by the Cancer Support Community and is funded in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you a breakaway from cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. 
Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Our episode today is brought to you by Lilly Oncology. We've been taking a close look at metastatic breast cancer with our wonderful guest, Dr. Lydia Shapira. I want to I want to jump in, um, Dr. Shapira, and talk a little bit about um, survivorship. Tell us about your work as the director of cancer survivorship at the Stanford Comprehensive Cancer Institute. And I also want to talk about, you know, what does what does survivorship mean? For somebody with metastatic breast cancer, somebody who is, as you suggested earlier, going to be on treatment for the rest of their life, what does that term mean to them? What do you hear from patients? So that's a great question. Thank you, Kim. What I hear from patients is that they're calling this meta-survivorship as a way of saying that they, too, want to be counted as those uh, among those who are living well with cancer, even if they're living with cancer indefinitely. So survivors are those who have been touched by cancer. And once you have been touched by cancer, it's with you forever. And that's the way, that's the orientation of our program. One of the, uh, one of the areas of, of uh, concentration for our program has been to think about how many of the survivors um, are actually experiencing their care with other physicians who are not trained in cancer medicine. So how do they integrate into their primary care and other specialists, and uh, what we've discovered as, as we've been listening to people is that we need to expand the capacity of those who really understand the needs of cancer populations, whether you were treated before, or you have it now, or you'll have it forever. So one of the focuses of, of uh, my program is to actually um, educate the healthcare force uh, about the needs of cancer survivors through professional education programs and by raising awareness. And so we, so we have been at the cancer support community educating patients about how do you be an educated patient, how do you engage in shared decision-making with your doctor. We do skills building with patients. Tell us how you do that with the docs. You know, what are you talking about with the docs in terms of being on the other half of that shared decision-making scenario? And how do doctors respond to the training um, and, and the work that you've done in this area? So I think that progress will be made when we do this on both sides, as you've said. And you and I certainly have known that and have uh, have loved changing, exchanging our experiences because I think that we need informed patients who are engaged in their care, and we need informed clinicians who know how to have rapport and listen to their patients and customize the treatment plan. So in cancer survivorship, the main area, I think, of of interest of mine right now is this idea of how to help patients manage, so self-management, which is exactly what you and your teams have been doing by providing access to um, expert-vetted information, by uh, providing skills and tools and resources. On the clinician side, uh, what we've done here at Stanford is we've designed some uh, workshops mostly for nurses and nurse practitioners to really learn communication skills and um, other skills that are necessary to, to work with cancer survivors. So we specifically want them 
to really understand and be responsive to questions about being afraid that the cancer is going to recur, of knowing how to answer questions uh, that come about uh, about the need for more tests, to focus more on quality of life and on the impact that having cancer had or has on the rest of their lives and their loved ones. So communication skills training, we just finished putting together a course that we're about to launch next week on our Stanford CME portal for physicians, mostly primary care docs, that actually provide some of these scenarios of patients coming in for their checkups and say, well, if you see cancer in the problem list, how should you address it? So we really are trying hard to um, to um, improve the skill set of both the cancer clinicians and the primary care docs to better listen, better care for, and better advise and guide their patients. Yeah, and I and I think that we have come really in the cancer community to a definition of survivorship, at least a shared definition that I think we've all sort of embraced that you are a survivor from the day you're diagnosed and through your entire life, you know, and whether that means whether that means cure, whether that means living with metastatic disease, whatever that means from the day of diagnosis and throughout that, that you're, um, you're, you're considered a, um, a survivor. Um, we're, we're inching towards um, the edge of our show here, but, um, I, you know, I, I, don't, I just want to get your thoughts on living with metastatic breast cancer and, and advice that you have for somebody who is diagnosed with, with metastatic breast cancer. I think you've shared a lot of good news today that, that people are living longer, that they're living better, they're, they're learning to live well, we're making good, um, uh, a good progress, but certainly those can be tough words for a patient to hear. So if, if you have somebody who's just been diagnosed with metastatic uh, breast cancer, whether that's the initial diagnosis or a recurrence, what tips, what advice do you have um, for them, Lydia, as we get to the show here? Sure, sure. I um I went through this with a friend not too long ago. I think the most important thing is to take time to first um, internalize and accept the diagnosis, um, to try to um, to be compassionate towards yourself and prepare yourself for the fact that you need to have a plan for the long haul. I think having a good team, one that you trust, one that you enjoy working with, one that you uh, really feel is a good fit is important, and it may take a little while to, to get that in place to be open to the idea of trying different treatments and to recognize that there will be a need for different treatments is, I think, important. To learn to accept some uncertainty um, and live with it and learn how to um, look for supports that prevent you sort of from crashing when you feel low. And I think all of those things to prepare yourself for the fact that there may be disappointments, there may be some treatment failures, but it's important to really think of it as um, as something that um, you need to you need to invest in again as a as a, a long term project and and to be supported you know it's very difficult to do this alone you know that and I know that and I think that you know feeling supported having somebody who can listen to you having somebody who can accompany you to appointments and take notes and help help you ask questions is really important as well and just uh, just quickly Dr Shapira. You mentioned having finding a good fit, feeling good about your team. Does that also mean that patients should be encouraged to get a second opinion? Yeah, sometimes having a second opinion may help just as a confirmatory opinion, just to know that another expert reviewed it and agrees. And sometimes a second opinion can actually help 
because you may actually find that, that there are other ways of approaching cancer care or building a cancer team that actually appeal to you more or are a better fit. Um, I think all of, all of those reasons are important. Not everybody needs a second opinion, but for those mm-hmm. who feel that, um, that it's important, I think that uh, this certainly um, I would certainly uh, recommend that. Great, great, great advice. This has been a great conversation uh, that we've had with Dr. Lydia Shapiro. Lydia, I'm incredibly grateful for you spending some time with us today and helping us really navigate these waters. Um, a lot of complexity, a lot of information to take in, but I think that you've given us some good information and good guidance. Um, I also want to remind our listeners that we're here for you at the Cancer Support Community. Uh, we have uh, 50 centers around the country, um, and we provide support groups, educational programs, nutrition exercise, stress reduction, we um, have now opened up our helpline. It's now available seven days a week at 888-793-9355. I'm going to say it again if you're grabbing a pen, 888-793-9355. The helpline is now open seven days a week. There's a ton of information at cancersupportcommunity.org. You can join our online community, My Lifeline, engage with our digital discussion boards, um, so we have a lot to offer if you're facing any kind of cancer diagnosis. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Kim Tibaldo. Until next time, be well, do well, live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org.